The Balance and Fall Special Interest Group of the Academy of Neurologic Physical Therapy, a component of APTA, is bringing you this interview today. So today I'm uh, interviewing Cindy Gibson-Horn, who's the CEO and founder of Motion Therapeutics. And with that, I just want to give a quick background uh, and then hand off so Cindy can tell us a little bit about herself and what led to the development of the body body based torso system that she's developed and, and some of the clinical improvements that she's seen from that. Um, so I'm Julie Schwartfiger, as you know, and I do podcasts for the Bounce and Falls Special Interest Group of the Academy of Neurologic PT. And I came to find out about some of the fascinating uh, advances in balance assessment and treatment when I went to four-step, which is something that the Academy of Neurologic PT um, they do these step conferences whenever there's a big jump forward in the research uh, for neurologic clinical care. And a friend of mine, Diane Allen, said, Julie, have you gone to this booth? Uh, my friend and colleague, Cindy Gibson-Horn, has developed this amazing uh, clinical assessment and treatment for balance, and you should check it out. So I went and I, I did check it out. And uh, found that it was unique and very different than anything I had experienced. And I, I'm, I'm a neuro nerd. I'm constantly reading the research and identifying these things. And in fact, I'm the immediate past chair of the Balance and Falls Special Interest Group. So I'm committed to Balance and Falls. And since then, I've bounced around that idea. And um, in my current role, which is at Rosalind Franklin University, teaching the neuro uh, courses, I developed and directed neuro clinics twice a year for the uh, pre-licensed DPT students. And there was a, um, a, a, a client who came in for our interprofessional class to tell her story. She had severe balance loss from gentamicin neurotoxicity uh, for treatment of kidney infection. And um, this person had oscillopsia, bilateral vestibular uh, damage that was, um, was not able to, to be improved, um, uh, like I think it was over 90%. And sensory, uh, somatosensory deficits from the neurotoxicity, as well as, again, the vision oscillopsia. So she would come in and touch the floor in all four directions. Uh, she fell, I think she said, too many times a day to count. And she would walk into the classroom and get everybody's attention um, as she touched the floor and um, touched things in, in all directions and, and had a very wide base of support. When she got to the podium, she put her hand on the podium and um, was a little bit more steady where she felt like she could, you know, focus and, and give her talk about uh, the patient experience and the importance that clinicians play in that. Um, from that, I invited her to be my, my client for a neurologic clinical exam that I would do the first day of the clinical neuro course for the, the students. And in interviewing her, I asked her, um, you know, what we would need to do to be safe and also to let her know what, what we would be doing for in front of the students to make sure she was comfortable. And at one point she said, well, you know what would be really neat, Julie, is um, have someone in the back of the room turn the light off and I'll go down like a, a bag of rocks, which, you know, made me say, well, no, we're not gonna do that. Um, 
but it made me say, okay, instead of having you sit on the mat that we have in the front of the classroom, how about a chair that has a backrest um, where your back was supported and you would feel that on um, that backrest as well as armrest? And she said, oh, well, then I'd be fine. And it made me recall what I learned at the four-step conference and explore that and pull up the literature and review it and share it with students. And in fact, um, we did what I, uh, I should apologize to Cindy, we did a garage version, a very poor cousin to uh, her wonderful research. And even that uh, with a, you know, a vest uh, made out of cast off pieces of material and something we got at a secondhand thrift store uh, with some pockets sewn in to put some weights that we had lying around in the classroom. It made an immense difference. Um, the other piece of that story is that the students in, in hearing me talk about this untried, you know, different approach went to one of, one of my colleagues who's considered a, an expert in balance and said, well, what do you think of this, you know, balance weighting? And the colleague, you know, her knowledge uh, stopped at, well, yeah, you can put uh, kind of a belt, a weighted belt, um, and we use that in the clinic. But at no point did she consider or know about um, Cindy Gibson Horn's work. Um, uh, and in fact, the, the, you know, putting something at that waist level was not going to be effective. Um, and so that got me thinking, and we did do a poster with those students. And um, I'm happy to say that this client has continued to make really excellent gains and uh, still has the garage. I'm embarrassed to say still has the garage version of the, the vest, but um, uh, you know, it, for the benefits she's had uh, in the educational clinic that it came from, um, pretty amazing. And it ties back to the work that you're going to hear more about right now. And with that, um, Cindy, I'm going to hand it over to you and you can tell us the, the good stuff of, of how this came about and how this system works. Okay, thank you so much. Um, as you all um, know, I'm a PT and a clinician. And um, I was a strategic waiter in many of the research studies. And it's really been a goal of mine to share this information with the broader rehabilitation community. Because so many patients contact motion therapeutics and they want to know about a balance vest. And they tell me that many of the clinicians or physicians in the community have never heard of the intervention. So I really want to thank you, Julie, for inviting me to talk because it's really been my goal to get this out. Um, so I received my bachelor's degree from University of Wisconsin. It'll be 40 years in May. <laughs> and so many things have changed over the years. And my daughter just got her NCS a year ago. So I've watched the evolution of PT from when I was um, a young PT all the way through where it is and all the research and evidence. And it's been a really fun career. Um, you know, as I look back at um, what I did, what I learned over the years, I did home health, inpatient, outpatient, and I always wondered, you know, why I couldn't help certain patients. And it, it, it like, I always blamed it on myself, which that's silly, but, but it kept me interested enough to think about what if. And as I started thinking of how did we come up with balance-based torso waiting, I was, um, essentially thinking back over to the, my career, what courses I might have taken that would influence me. And one of them was a year-long course in the Maitland um, it, uh, approach to manual therapy. And in that, it directs you to look at assessment of the joints in a three-dimensional manner 
and then apply a treatment and then sit the person back up and look at the three-dimensional movement that they had. So that was like, I don't know why that might've been in the back of my mind, but at the same time, when this um, occurrence happened, my clinical aha, which we'll talk about in a moment, I was in a research study working with people with osteoporosis. And we had read the literature and we looked at weighted vests and how they can help build bone density if you're jumping. And we were in a community-based um, program where we were helping people with fractures below their waist twice a week. And we had this whole balance and strengthening program and walking. And we included the um, a weighted vest um, after a certain period of time to actually increase the intensity and to help with strengthening and hopefully build bone density. So that's where this all started is um, uh, I, we were weighting these vests very symmetrically. And because, you know, people are symmetric, right? So wrong. Actually, people aren't symmetric. And along came Mary. And she is the end of one that led to all of the research uh, that has come forward. And I learned so much about her. In fact, I followed her for 14 years over this period of time to see what's going on with her. So uh, it's, it's very interesting. So she um, was just discharged home with a, from an exacerbation of MS. And I was seeing her as a home health therapist. She was extremely dizzy and was barely able to stand up. And while she had some weaknesses, what really caught my attention was that she was standing and, and her, her back was like 45 degrees behind her pelvis. And she was like hanging on these ligaments. And um, when she would walk, she had a lot of lateral instability, um, knee hyperextension. And then as she stood, her feet were pronated, very flat footed. If she, she had to, if she walked, she had to, to look at a corner and walk to it because she couldn't move her head at all. So um, for some reason, I had this aha moment and I'm like, what if I could just bring her forward? I have that vest in my car and I ran out and I got it and I started putting weights on her, her abdomen, abdominal area around the navel and I put a half pound on, she came up a little bit. When I added a pound and a half, all of a sudden her trunk came over her pelvis. It was almost like I put my, um, I plugged into a socket and it was just immediately there. She's upright and um, her, she even developed an arch in her feet. And she, when she walked, she didn't have the lateral instability. The hyperextension of her knees were less. And we looked at each other and we were like in this like amazed moment. And we just sat down and cried. And it was such an amazing change in a, a difficult neurological patient that I was like, oh my God, what did I come up with? What did I do? And she's like, I don't have to think to move. So those are very important words because that's how we function. I don't have to think to move. So the next six sessions um, were one week apart and I started videotaping her with the vest on, with the vest off and seeing when she would lunge, how she couldn't control her trunk and her whole body. But yet I had her weighted, she could and we could walk and talk when she was weighted. She couldn't do anything when she wasn't weighted. And it was so dramatic that this N of one um, really drove what happened. So then I began to, um, to try this with other patients and I recorded um, many videos and I would look at them. And at one point 
I realized, um, geez, did this really happen? This patient's not better. I did, it was, she was better last time I put the vest on, it's not working. What, uh, in, did I really see this? And um, she said, and then I was talking to my husband and he goes, well, Cindy, were the weights in the same pockets? And I'm like, no, actually, no, no, that's what it is. The weights have to be very strategic. And so um, I took the videos to Samuel Merritt, now it's called Samuel Merritt University, met with Dr. Gail Widener. And I showed her these same session videos and she's like, wow, this is amazing. Can I help you do some research? And so she got Diane Allen from um, San Francisco State, and now she's at USF too, UCSF, uh, to come and work with us. And um, this was um, an amazing collaboration between, you know, people who understood all the literature and a clinician, clinician who didn't know what the heck did I do. And so uh, uh, I found that you know they were great mentors to me, and also so were. Um, Judy, Judith um, Deutsch, who was the JNPT editor at the time, and Catherine Gilbody helped me, along with Gail and Diane, actually publish the case report on Mary. And in that case report, I think it's in 2007, there are the videos, some of the original videos of that patient um, that were up online a while ago. I don't know if they still are. Uh, so anyway, as we begin to um, talk about research. First, do you have any questions? Anyway, so, so, so no, thank you. Sorry, I had to unmute. Um, I, I love that you tied it back to um, your start and, and I love the, the, the hat tip to JNPT so people can go back and read their, their 20, 2007 uh, JMPT, and I believe those video supplements are a regular staple now of JMPT, so I, I they should be there. Um, but I wanted to, your aha, I just wanted to pause on that because it's so profound, you know, to, to have something that makes you have to stop and, and sit down and cry together, I think you said, right? Like, that's a yeah. lot. That's big. And um, the same thing happened, and again, this this very poor cousin to uh, using your concepts in, in the classroom. And um, it was transformative for, for this client. I mean, she started to do, she started to live her life. She started to participate in, in activities. And this is after having exhausted going to the, you know, specialist dizzy docs and physical therapists and uh, had been living with this for, I want to say it was a decade um, uh, of really being constrained to the house and multiple falls a day and giving up most of her participation. So I'm going to guess part of that was all of the catharsis you felt with the, the sitting and crying together with, with Mary. Yeah. It's amazing. And, um, you know, over the years, we've done that with a lot of patients because a lot of people, especially with ataxia, are, are um, various types of ataxia, are told that there's nothing they can do. Really, it's, it's a difficult diagnosis. So patients have flown in from all over the world to try this. And um, patients will drive from all over the US to see clinicians who are now trained in this three-dimensional strategic waiting technology. Um, even like across state lines, it's, it's you know, they, people want help. And uh, so anyway, I thought where I would go next is to talk about a little bit how we came up with the research, kind of what, what we were thinking. And, and also, I think it was important to tease out 
as I got more involved with learning, I didn't know what I was doing. And having the researchers try to corral me <laughs> and, and understand exactly what I was doing to determine the losses um, and the strategic weighting, I think is in a kind of important. So what I was um, started out with is what, what was I looking at? And so when you put a person in a least stable position, so I typically say the Romberg, um, and I test them eyes closed and a lot of people, eyes open, eyes closed, a lot of people time their Romberg and that's what they're looking at. That's not what I'm looking at. I'm looking at the trunk on a, as if it's sitting on a force plate <laughs> and I'm looking at where the trunk is going, anterior, posterior, lateral rotation, how far the trunk is going and the velocity of that movement. And so that's really, and then going to be trying to control that. So we can, we can take this and look at that, just that in itself from someone who's sitting in acute care on a plinth without defeat supported to, to someone who's a high level sports person. And, I have, and this, this whole thing has the ability to go from high level sports all the way to pediatrics and people who, um, who just can't even sit, okay? And um, so then the next thing I, I did was as I watched people, and I know all of us do this at the airport, we can pick an abnormal gait out from a distance. So everything that we do, whether in anticipatory control and proactive control is we're functioning, but therapists can pick out that abnormal person in a crowd. But what is it that's abnormal about each movement from a sit to stand or from, um, you know, walking and turning their head where they veer off one way or that kind of stuff. What is the abnormality? Why does the score in the Berg or the dynamic gate or the FTA, why does that score, are you marked out? What is going on at the body because of that? So not just can they do it or not, it's what's wrong. And so then I began nudging the body in all different ways and I began to break the body down into anterior and posterior loss and lateral loss of the upper and lower trunk. So upper and lower torso and also um, rotational symmetry. And what Gail and Diane did after one time at CSM, somebody told me, you know, you're not pulling me as hard or you're not nudging me as hard. I'm, you know, after I'd weighted them, they, they challenged me. And so in one of our research studies, they put dynamometers on my hands and we found out what I was doing. And we found out the forces that were applied, the quickness that were applied, and also, you know, um, the rotational symmetry that I was, I was doing in my head, not on paper. And we broke, took, took what was in my head and, and created, you know, well, this is what you're really doing. And um, that's what we teach now in our trainings. And um, we actually teach with dynamometers because if you nudge a person too slow, you will knock them over easier. If you nudge them very quick, um, they actually, I, I don't think we talk about reflexes in the trunk much, but I wonder if that's what it is. And I really wonder if there's some reflexes at the trunk level that are activated that keep us upright. And when you're doing these perturbations, um, we look at 12 things, 
big 12 different things, two different rotations of the upper and lower trunk, two different anterior posteriors of the upper and lower trunk and laterals as well. So it's actually 12 different aspects I'm looking at. And um, you will find here, some, some people say like, if you have a post, you nudge the upper trunk posterior, you will find that some people have no protective response and fall and you have to catch them. Same thing with maybe a lateral to the right. And the lateral to the left may be just fine. And, you know, so you really can dissect out each person's specific bounce losses. But what's important if they are, are a maximal loss backwards and to the right, that's, that could be a hip fracture in waiting. And if the velocity of loss is fast, they're gonna hit the ground a lot harder, which could produce a fracture. So going back to that osteoporosis work, if you don't have the bone density to, to, for that impact, you're gonna have a fracture. So um, at being able to tease out this, and I always play a game with myself. I don't even ask where a patient fell or what direction they fell. I ask them after I do the assessment, did you fall this way? And many times I'm correct. And so it's more that this is uh, you know, a fascinating game for me to figure out the trunk. And then, then based on those losses, you begin to strategically place weights on the body. And originally I thought it was biomechanical and because Mary was falling backwards and I weighted her forwards, biomechanical, right? Well, Diana, Diane Allen and um, some of the students at UCS, UCSF, or I don't know if it was San Francisco State at the time or the combination, they're combined now, um, looked at this and they looked at where I put the weights on the body and where what happened to the center of gravity, center of mass, mass um, on the force plates under the feet. And they found that only like 20% of the people actually were in the direction of the weights. So kind of like took away the biomechanical thought process of this is maybe um, applying a sensory input. And when I think about the sensory input um, to the trunk, through the vest, um, you know, these weights are placed very strategically. You think of light touch, when, you, when you're touching a patient, they're steadier. When they just touch the wall with a fingertip, they're steady, steadier and they know where they are. Yes. And, you know, patients with MS, there's, a, there's studies out there, if, if they're using a cane, the cane actually provides the reference to the ground through the hand, through the arm and up through the neck. So you skip the body. You skip yes. <laughs> yes. And, you know, I just to pause here again, I, I love the sensory systems. I'm, I'm all about that and, and rehabilitation and teaching pre-licensed PT students it's hard to get them to wrap their head around that um, and, and then synthesize it into coming up with treatment approaches or even really evaluating uh, measured deficits uh, after they methodically go through the assessment that we, we make them methodically go through, but to, to really make use of that information and say, aha, this can affect performance. And it goes back to, so my story that led me to you is, uh, this person walking through a room um, at great length and, and with lots of, um, you know, uh, uh, lateral anterior posterior um, uh, balanced losses and, and touching things along the way. And then the touching the podium with her hands made all the difference where she could stand and, and function to talk. Um, so just to illustrate that, that great point. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, anyway, so, you know, I actually listened to Dr. Um, Padula's talk with you the other day, 
And it oh, was good be because I um I mentioned you in it. I didn't listen to the whole thing. I didn't hear oh. that. But that's <laughs> interesting because he said some very important pieces, and this is leads to future. But um, you know, I found with Mary early on, um, maybe maybe like two years later, I'd see her periodically through the time, and at the time we did an SOT, and we also did a vision test with her. And Dr. Lori Chaikin, who's a neurooptometrist and an OT, uh, and a, um, she looked at Mary's eyes and her vision before and after waiting. And she had very different visual tests. Her, um, the exphoria was different, her depth perception, the ability to move her eyes um, when you would just do a, a horizontal movement with her were, were so much she would grab a chair if you started a, a, a horizontal movement with her, but yet she could do it when she was weighted. And I've seen, you know, so many patients have said they've left the clinic and they've driven, you know, far, far from home. And they're saying, you know, I can see down the freeway better, or I never realized there were trees on the side of my driveway. These are wow. things patients tell us. So it's like, what does that mean? And then listening to Dr. Patula's talk, all of a sudden that whole peripheral piece of vision started to like come into my thought process based on what I was seeing by creating an input to the sensory trunk mm. about where they are in space. And yeah. so that was, yeah. uh, you know, I just listened to it. So I got to go back and try to like, look at the anatomy. It was a little deep for me. I I, yeah, I, I love that because I, I I will tell you that Bill and I would love to connect with you and talk about some possibilities for some ongoing research because um, I think there's a lot there, right? Um, oh my gosh! I mean, I wanted to call him up that day. It's like, you know, you you've got something. I know there's something here. <laughs> um, do you want to talk about the research a little bit, or where would you like to go? Yes. Well, so one more thought, and then I'm going to hand it back to you to to talk about the the studies that you did. Um, you know, so the methods you used and then what the outcomes were. Uh, and, and I hope that we leave time and energy to talk about uh, the, the free videos where people can um, introduce themselves and, and, and understand the concepts of, uh, of the approach and the techniques that you've brought forward in the literature um, before, before we end. So just really briefly, talking about sensory systems, which you, you know, you, you've definitely hit on that. It's not just biomechanics, but there's a, a huge aspect of this that's really about the uniqueness of the trunk sensory systems. And for you students out there, um, and that can be of people of any age and, and designation of their role, you know, go back and look at those tracts um, and that there are different ones that go to the trunk um, and, and think about that. Um, but also, uh, there's some really unique research out there that I think um, helps make this point. So Alex Arun uh, is an engineer at UIC actually, and he's got a lot of patents, but th the brilliance of them that I really like is they, they all are focused on sensory systems. So one is um, this irritating thing you put in someone's shoe on the non-involved leg for people with, you know, stroke or brain injury, so acquired brain injury. And it gives them a noxious stimuli. So it pushes them to put more weight on their paretic limb. And it actually, you know, so it's actually 
successful. Um, and the other thing is um, sensors that can apply a sensory force, um, like you mentioned in MS, the sensory system is so important in MS and, and it gets, when it gets missed in treatment, it just, it makes me crazy um, to say like, wow, how are you missing the sensory system? You can't do that and call yourself something MS, you know, clinician, but it happens um, because you can't see it. I think it, it really requires more thought. But so this is, you know, you've got someone with MS going to grasp a cup and part of the problem, as I understand it, is they can't regulate turning different muscles on to different degrees where it's just what's needed. So they end up turning on all this extra muscle activity. And then you go in, if you've got the EMG, the, the, the EMGs on um, to, to show that, you go and you take that finger touch and you see all of these muscles now that aren't needed turning off where they're conserving energy and not wasting it, just with a light touch of a person's finger. It can be their own finger. But the power of sensory input and that detection and weighting um, of sensory input is, is just so powerful. And I, I just love that about your, your approach um, and with the vest, because I think when people think about a vest and weighting the trunk, um, the one place I have seen in the literature outside of your work is like with autism and um, people with anxiety where it's really just about heavy weighting to feel held. And, and so that's a very different sensory need that that's getting at uh, for calming the autonomic nervous system uh, versus just trying to have stability to function, which is, you know, another brilliant use and, and very different that you use in the way that the weighting in the vest happens, um, which I hope is a good segue to let you talk about your research. Yeah. Go back, going back a little bit to that sensory piece and why I think it's working when you place it's not just light touch. So when you place the, the weight in the vest next to the body, that is what, what I would consider light touch, but also the amount of weight that is required in certain locations is different. So some people, like if you have a lot of loss, you're going to have like a half pound to a pound in certain areas. If you have, you know, minimal loss, you're going to have maybe an eighth of a pound in a certain place in the vest. And um, so, like I said, looking at those 12 different losses, potential losses of balance, we then weight according to how much loss is in each area and combine some of the areas so that you could place one weight to control multiple directions. And um, that then is pressed. So you have pressure against the skin because so it's light touch and it's pressure and it's weight pulling down on the skin. So you're getting stretched, you're getting pressure, you're getting light touch. Um, and I also feel like, so when you do this, you'll see a patient become more upright. And so now the extensors say in the back, because you waited in the back, um, are pulling a person. It's not pulling. It's, I think their muscles are becoming facilitated and I haven't, we haven't proven that. However, when you do a rotation test and you can turn someone completely around 180 degrees, and you place a weight in very specific rotation places on the back immediately, like the, uh, the second that the weight is placed, they're strong. And so that is what I consider the muscle facilitation. Mm. And, um, when you do that, then the person's center of mass may change. So then there's new inputs going down through the feet, through the, through the, the, through the hips, through the knees, through the feet driving a new informational loop 
to the to wherever it's going because it could be just going through the spinal cord and be coming right back out. In fact, I did a little bit of work with some patients with spinal cord injury and um, I was just, I didn't know what it would do. I didn't think it would, I didn't know for sure if it would even help them, but I went down and did it and they weren't have, didn't have to use their head so much to control mm. the clock. Wow. Um, high levels, um, spinal cord. Um, so that tells me there's something at the trunk that's, that must be participating. <laughs> but where the information is going, because there's so many different patients, patients being helped, MS, Parkinson's, stroke, um, patients with ataxia, older adults, and people, different lesions, different, I mean, MS, there's lesions all different places, yet it was helping a lot of these people. So we'll go back into the, the research, and I'm not going to go into it too much in depth, because, but mostly to, to let you know that there has been like, you know, there's been some blinded randomized control trials, randomized control trials, a lot of cohort studies, quasi-experimental, there's different types of evidence based on the amount of money we could get to do research. Um, and also, um, we didn't really have too many problems recruiting patients because basically our research said, do you have MS? Can you speak English? Do you have a balance problem and have any problems with walking? Come on. <laughs> so, so, you know, we were able to fill our studies pretty quick, which is our general population. And they were all for all kinds of MS, you know, um, relapsing, remitting, secondary progressive, primary progressive. And what was really nice is that we were in um, one of the last studies where we did the sensory organization test. We found that all of the different patients, when we broke them down by category, were being helped. And so regardless, if you didn't have a medication that would help uh, a progressive, secondary progressive, you now had an intervention that could possibly help. So we found that basically in most of the studies were improving walking speed. We, um, in one of the studies on the gate right, we saw that we were um, improving um, single limb stance and less time on double limb stance. So increase in stability. Uh, uh, the walking speed was interesting because we were having them walk as fast as they could across the mat three times before and after waiting. And we had healthy controls. And what was interesting about that was that you know, both of them improved 4%, the healthy people who walked as fast as they could and the people with MS. So why is that important? Well, the people with MS can get across the street during the light and the healthy people have an edge in a race. So, hmm, interesting. And, um, and then the sensory organization test, which is the, um, that study, they came in, they had um, two walk, 25 foot walks, two tugs, two dynamic gates, two SOTs. It was, you know, it was a lot of time in the, in the clinic and for, for people with MS, anywhere from three to five hours, dependent on how much they needed to rest. And the second, um, so would they go through one series of tests, then they'd let them rest and I'd show up and I'd do the waiting and then they'd repeat the SOT and the rest of the things after. And what we found, even though these people were getting tired and there was some cognitive tiredness as well, uh, is that 55% um, of the people had over a nine point gain in the, in the um, SOT. Wow. Yeah. And <laughs> that was like, it was so exciting. I mean, some people had a 20 point change in an SOT, like Mary, Mary had a huge change. And that's probably why the aha was there is because, because it was hard to not see. Um, so then um, more recently this year, there was an article that came out, maybe it was the end of last year on ataxia, one of the first ones on ataxia. 
There is not an article in Parkinson's, however, there was a double-blind randomized controlled trial that actually did show improvement in walking speed. Um, I think that older, all of those are the same session, okay? Um, the, the next one is kind of interesting because it was older adults and it was the first study we looked at. Um, what was the effect of wearing the vest over time um, before the vest was on and then with no vest on? Okay, so was there carryover? Was there learning? And this one, you know, sometimes I just fall into to luck. I was at a CSM doing, um, you know, my perturbations and waiting people in my booth. And I met Dr. Jennifer Vincenzo, who's more in the geriatric balance and falls. Yes, we, we've collaborated across our balance and falls thing. She's wonderful. Yes. The dynamo. And um, so she said, you know, I don't believe you can change me. And so we did it. And she's like, wow, I know I'm working on my PhD. And at the, a month prior to that, I was at an ataxia conference and I actually have a booth where I wait 25 patients with ataxia. I'm very fast with this. And then I go, boom, 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 okay, walk. And so um, there was this guy there at, at a, we were having dinner and he goes, does this help older adults? I'm like, I don't know. And he goes, you know, I own 10 assisted livings. Why don't you guys uh, buy 40 vests, come out. And so he did. And so I called Jennifer, I'm like, will you do this? And she's in Arkansas, I'm in California. And the research is done in the middle of Pennsylvania in Hershey. <laughs> so we flew out, we did all our pretests, and and um, yeah, I was wondering, you know, five days, that's not very much time to, to learn, right? And uh, with no PT. <laughs> so we found after five days actually that that which was 20 hours, the, the protocol was two hours twice a day for five days. And then the, they took off the vest that night and the next day we did the research. And what we found at that point was a significant difference in the short physical performance battery, but nothing else, not, you know, not consistent with walking speed, not consistent with FGA and different things we were measuring. But then we, then the, so that was a double-blinded randomized control trial. And then anybody who, he said, we, the guy who bought the vest did not want us just to like have half people waited and half people not. And so the second half, then we waited whoever wanted to be in the study who had vests could get weighted. And so um, we ended up with, I think, 32 or 33 people. And um, then uh, we left and they were weighted. And I was kind of nervous about this. So I said, I want to go out once a month and test them and make sure that the weighting's right. I don't need any falls. And it feels terrible if someone fell. Because really, there's, there was no PT. They were just living their lives in an assisted living. And as I went out every month and checked them, I, at about month two, I started to notice I could decrease the amount of weight each month I went. And then at the end of four months, there was a significant difference in FGA gait speed, five times to stand, and all these fall risk indicators, and an, another improvement in the short physical performance battery. Wow. So this is a month after the initial measures where the short physical four performance better? Four, four months. months. So it actually calculated out was about 320 hours of wear. So we're thinking dosage, right? Uh. And, um, but it could have happened. The thing is, we don't know. It could have been there at two months or it could have been there at three months. We don't really know because we looked at it at four months. Uh, but anyway, that was um, interesting. That so, so Cindy, I, I just want to pause here again. Um, so a couple of things, the people in the study and the assisted living, did they have, uh, did they fall into a category of a number of falls or 
uh, gait or abnormalities or fear of falling? Or like, were there any commonalities tied to an at-risk population that might have reached out to you on their own? Uh, or were they just, you know, from the general population of people in assisted living? Um, I think it was a combination uh, of people. Um, a mix. Average age was 86 starting and at the end of four months, it was 87. So they were, they were fairly older adults. Yeah. <laughs> the, the other, oh, go ahead. That's all right. So my other question is, um, I, I love old people. I've worked with geriatric um, clients most of my career and I, I love them, right? Because the personality is there and they, they are going to tell you what they're going to do and what they're not going to do. If they don't like the, the, the vest, if it's a nuisance, if they're not feeling the benefit, I could see where, what do they call it? Adherence, <laughs> isn't it the word we use? Adherence to wearing the vest would be very low. And so it, it's a good time, I think, to talk about like, what is this vet, like, how do you put the vest on? How heavy is it? What kind of feedback do you get of comfort level, especially when it's more weight? Cause you said you were able to decrease the weights. You know, what's that range go from? And then what was the adherence as, as far as you could tell? Um, you know, the vests aren't that weighted that heavily. In our MS study, the average weight was 1.25 pounds and it wasn't in one spot, it was distributed. And the same thing in, in the older adult in the average weight was I think maybe one and a half pounds. So it wasn't a weight thing. However, I developed um, smaller weights because if someone has a large rotation, you're typically weighting in the upper trunk and if they're kyphotic and you have a half pound there, it's pulling them forward. So the lighter weights, you can then um, strategically start loading the spine in a more longitudinal way. So it's not so much weight in a certain location. So um, that was one of the things that came out of that study is decreasing, you know, or not using a heavy weight, but like a half pound weight, I consider as a heavy weight, um, to, but to have smaller increments that you could use down the spine. The other thing we increased the, the um, there was difficulty in some patients getting the vest on and off. So we increased the size of the armholes for the patients. And then we also developed another um, best that's actually very um, stretchy, like swimsuit material. And uh, I would say about half of the people continued on wearing their vest after the, the, the study. That's and, quite an endorsement of comfort and ease of use. Yeah. Um, and I mean, some people who were on canes and walkers, they could walk without them. And the interesting thing in that first five days you know, of course, the assisted living doesn't want a patient to fall. So they're saying, use your walker, use your walker, use your walker, right? Can't, no, you can't go without your walker. But, and so maybe what was going on there over the period of four months is patients were starting, or patient subjects were starting to feel more comfortable in their body when it was on. And so they'd get off their bed and they'd take a few steps over to the the dresser or whatever, and they started to move about their rooms more to give the body the chance, the, the challenge to improve balance. Is that, you know, and, um, but, you know, as a proponent, as a physical therapist, I really think the combination is what, what's really important, but when you're doing research, you're doing research. Um, so, you know, since that, since all these studies came out, um, now there's, it's translated in the clinic and I've seen, you know, posters at CSM on C CIPD, TBI, stroke, um, concussion has been 
presented and neuropathy has been presented by a neurologist at AAN, vestibular, Huntington pain, a lot of things. And we're starting to learn dosage, but um, I think the patients tell us the most about dosage because they're going to do what they want. Yes. Yeah. And, you know, to, to, to that point, I don't know if you did this, but it, it definitely reinforced is what I believe more firmly every year, which is that a qualitative component in any good quantitative research study adds an immense amount of value, right? Like you said, the, the, there's the research and there's the tests and measures and the protocol that you follow religiously, right? And, and research, um, which is a funny thing to say, right? Religion and research. But, um, but with that, the, uh, the qualitative component gives you the, how did it matter to the, the people that used it and what were the specifics of what worked and what didn't and yeah. Mm -hmm. And if they feel, for, for me, it's like when they feel a difference that, you know, and, and a difference for one person may be a different, not the same for somebody else, but if you can't stand without support and all of a sudden Bouncer provides that standing control so you can stand at a cocktail party and have a conversation, that's huge for that patient. And so yeah. maybe your gait didn't get better, but maybe your standing control. I mean, we all know that standing control is, comes before gait. <laughs> but, and so we have to think about where, you know, I know that we're, we're changing how we're doing some research and, you know, the body weight support. I've actually done body weight support with a vet, with the balance where, um, and the perturbation training from the floor and had throw balls. You know, I've, I've tried to combine it all. Uh, yeah. it's, it's fun to combine different pieces. But uh, I think there was one patient who taught me the most about um, dosage and neuroplasticity. And she was a patient with cerebellar degeneration. And she called and she was from Florida. There was nobody in Florida. I, I said, well, there's this guy up in Philadelphia. His name is Andy Lusher. He had MS and he actually met him at CSM one time and he became certified in, the, in, in this. And um, so she flew to Philadelphia and she had been um, seeing NCS and they were great therapists because they ended up meeting him after this. Uh, what happened is they just couldn't make a difference in the cerebellar degeneration with whatever they did. And so um, this had been going on for a few years. So the patient was now falling off her scooter and having problems in sitting control. She goes up and he, she sees Andy and he waits her and gets, we usually, when someone's traveling that far, we'll send a, a potential vest for them. And he gets her weighted and she can stand for the first time, not well. And uh, then she goes back to their PTs, has two, eight, two times a week for eight weeks. And at the end of eight weeks, she can walk around her kitchen a little bit. Wow. And I'm following her like, I'm like. <laughs> wow. Really from up. from falling off a stool uh, a, a scooter or stool to walking around the kitchen that's amazing it's better so she stops pt and she starts using hiking poles in her vest and she starts walking every day with a helmet and then she's walking with one and then at at um six months there the videos are online um she you, you'll see her at halfway through her feet are hips are externally rotated, wide basis support walking. And at, five, at uh, six months, her feet are underneath her. And she continues to walk um, like between two and five miles a day. So she's driving her neurological system. And at a year, she, her 
she says, you know, I can't stand this weight back here anymore. And her partner says, you're going to fall if you take it off. And she says, no, I'm just going to take it off. If I fall, I'll put it back in. Well, nothing happened. So she took the whole vest off and she didn't need it. She didn't need it. So she walked her way to this. I mean, the inputs from the sensory inputs from what we applied balance where, with her gave her the ability to, to have the initial balance and maybe the confidence to do more and to challenge her body. But she did the work. She had the motivation. There was no input between that first month of PT after. Yeah. We did it all. And so it just goes to show them out in the, the intensity that's required to make some of these changes. But it also gives me a lot of hope that if you push a person to the max while they're steady and they have better motor control, what can we do? Yes. And I, I always think of uh, John Krakauer saying, you know, movement is fun. Like uh, human beings enjoy movement. It, it feels good, right? So giving somebody that sensory uh, addition that makes, puts them in a steady enough state to, to be able to move because it, it's like you've given them the sense of their body back, right? To, to function. Um, now it's about, you know, enjoying it, right? And, and, and getting that dosage up. And so she obviously was feeling good enjoying that walking to be so rigorous in her training. Um, and then to be able to lose the vest at the end, right? So it wasn't a lifelong um, uh, addition that she had to, to keep doing, which is, boy, I don't think it gets any better than that. Yeah. Now, I do know more about her, though. Four years after this, the cerebellar degeneration was worse. And according to the therapist that took the class, now that is in, down in Florida, is that she wasn't, her outcome wasn't as good. But, you know, she had four years. She hiked in Arizona in the foothills. She, you know, I have pictures of her doing all this stuff. She got four years of, of her old life back. And um, now I see her online. She's in a wheelchair. But, you know, it's... It's still that four years she had. Right. So it didn't, it didn't resolve the cerebellar ataxia that was progressing, but it gave her four years of high quality living um, before that's lost. And, and who knows? So like, that's the part that is like, we know then there's some wonderful researchers um, focused on cerebellar um, degeneration. Um, and, and it is known to be one of the toughest things, right? Um, the most recalcitrant to any kind of therapeutic intervention. So um, that's quite, quite, uh, quite an improvement for something that is, that is so difficult to make a change with. So, so that's a really nice review, Cindy, of uh, the, the number of the studies that, uh, that you completed. And I think as, as we wrap up, um, I'd love to have you share some of the ways people can learn a little bit more about this. So um, I, I was doing the math as we started and the JNPT 2007 article, if we take that as a launching point and think about what do they say for research to get into practice? 17. 17 years, like, you know, we might beat the curve and put you just ahead of 17 years where we really get this rolled out into widespread, pay. wouldn't that be cool? Um, but talk a little bit about where people can go to look this up and know that when we post this, we can also put links um, below the podcast for people to, to be able to pull up. Well, I think um, 
I, I made it a promise this year to try to, you know, get it out to as many people as possible. So anybody can go to www.balanceware.com and take a two hour class for free. It's um, in New York, they get two CEUs because I haven't, but um, the, it will, it's actually the beginning of the certification process and it goes over kind of the foundation, a little bit about what we talked about today, but more specifically into each research study and some of the, um, the, the, the presentations that have been done through um, the different therapists who, who provided evidence for care. And what I try to do in it is, is be a clinician, um, look, at, look at it from um, what is changing in my patient and what the research says sometimes doesn't show you the, the improvement in motor control that these patients are getting. And, uh, and so then I throw in a video from a therapist in conjunction with that research. I also show some gait analysis lab with a patient with a stroke very early on and um, talk about how I might have changed things now, now um, waited her too late. And then um, how I would, and then, then it just goes through everything with, with videos um, that kind of highlight what a patient can possibly get. Um, so that's, that's one place to do that for free. And then, um, so that's primary. And then going on our website, www.motiontherapeutics.com. That one, if you hit some of the YouTube, you'll see tons of videos up there of patients. And there's some videos spread throughout the, the, um, the, the website as well. Oh, wonderful to generate some ideas for people who want to learn more and um, hopefully take these good ideas and apply them to help your patients. Uh, one last thing I, I'm thinking about that, I, uh, that I've been hanging on to and, and wanted to just bring up and, and have a, a brief discussion with you about is uh, the statement that Mary said to you, that first aha patient of, I don't have to think to move. And um, that statement is so pr profound when you think about disability. Um, and th there's a lot of research in, in different diagnostic areas, right? Talking about um, the fact that like, so somebody with Parkinson's is walking and cognitively when they look at, you know, what their brain is doing, different parts of the brain are, light, are lighting up. And in fact, these things we take for granted, right? Like the translational part of getting to the thing we wanna do while we think about that thing. If you're cognitive, you know, our, our frontal lobe has such limited reserves. Um, it's not good at multitasking, it wears out. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's wonderful and it's unique and it makes us, you know, uh, the highest order creature, right? With our giant frontal lobes. However, it's got lots of limitations. And when you have to think to walk or to move, it means you can't be thinking about the things that make life important. And in fact, it means if you do start to think of those, you're probably gonna fall, right? And so that's a, a, an additional piece, that cognitive piece of fall risk that this vest obviously took, you know, gave her back. Um, and there's some interesting research I wanted to mention too, just like I mentioned in Bill Padula's talk, I mentioned you and, uh, and, and I, we will follow up because he's very interested in us connecting and, and creating some research. I wanted to mention to you a, a wonderful up and coming um, recent postdoc uh, graduate from Kansas, Malika Kaya, who has done uh, pupillometry. I, so I was part of 
Yeah, Kat was oh, you did? Yes. Oh, she's fantastic. And so this is research, I guess. So, so just to give the background, it, when you're, if I give you a math problem, you know, maybe it's figuring a tip or whatever on a, on a restaurant bill back when, back when we went to restaurants, um, while you're solving the problem, I will see your pupils constrict. And when you give up on problem solving it, even if you tell me you're still working on it, they'll, they'll dilate back to their regular size. And they've done studies. This is a crossover because in psychology, they've done stuff like this, I guess, for years. This is not an, uh, this is not a novel approach in the psychological or psychiatry realm, but it's really novel in the mobility realm. And so she's taken from this lab and applied this to, you've got this huge camera of this huge pupil and uh, you've got people walking. And so if you'll have, if I have you walk, Cindy, your pupils are going to be just the same size while you walk around. But if I have somebody with a stroke or with Parkinson's or MS walk, I'm going to see their pupils constrict. And the measurement of that as a diagnostic tool um, is kind of a brilliant addition. And I think about your research and the weighting and the location in the spine. Uh, and if we can add these kind of biomarkers to get at what underlies it, right? Like it, I'm just fascinated it, even more now that I've heard you talk about your research and what led to it and the, the, the direction it's going. Um, what, what is it about the waiting in the spine, right? And I'm, I'm seeing some neurologic tracks and, and considering those, but it does, you know, it's not an easy question to answer, but if we could understand it better, we could even help push this uh, research forward even farther, which would be so helpful for so many people. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I, I, I remember one time I met with Carolyn Patton and she said, you're going to be doing the research for the rest of your life. And I think actually um, we're still at the tip of an iceberg and there's so many things that the sensory system can, I found one key. And I think there's multiple keys that we can use to open up the neurological system and help manipulate it. And so, um, you know, as I've, I've, I've been going to CSM for years and I see a shift in the, the attendees and the presenters, and there's some super smart people coming up along the way. And I just feel like it'll be great to you know, collaborate, hand off, you know, pass the baton a little bit, um, because I think it's an area that we can, we can help a lot of patients with. Yes, absolutely. Oh my gosh. I have had so much fun talking to you. And before I just start talking about related things that I could go, we could talk for hours. Um, I just wanted to curtail myself and ask you, are there any last um, ideas or, or things that you wanted to share with our podcast audience before we let you go have a, a good rest of your day. Yeah, yeah. So I, I think um, my clinical pearl <laughs> was that clinical practice and and working, um, taking something from clinical practice to research and back, you know, has a, a good place to, to for researchers to consider um, because I think that working together in a very collaborative way will, will drive um, what's needed in the clinic. Um, and then listen to your patients. They actually tell you, they tell you what to research. They tell you so much about how something is working 
if you just pay attention and analyze it. So. Wow, wise words, very wise words. And um, with that, we'll close. I wanna thank you again and uh, wish everyone a wonderful podcast day. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for listening to this interview brought to you by the Balance and Fall Special Interest Group of the Academy of Neurologic Physical Therapy. For more information on this special interest group or the Academy, visit www.neuropt.org.